Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thanks for the work that you have done and are doing in our lives. Thanks, God, that you put us, you don't just leave us on our own, but that you put us inside a church and that you give us a mission and you give us gifts. And we get to be a family, we get to be a part of what you're doing. And uh, what a privilege it is, Lord, what a joy it is. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you are working here at Ignite. And uh, just for the good plans you have in store for us throughout the summer, uh, throughout the upcoming year, and just, uh, you know, even today, just the good plans you have in store. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would align our hearts, you would align our actions uh, to step more and more into that reality, more into the life that you have for us. Would you break in today, God? Would you, would you work in ways that bring you honor and glory, in ways that set us free and that, that usher us into the new life that you have for us? God, we love you. We need you. We just offer this time to you and pray that you would come and speak and minister and meet with us in a powerful way right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to start out, just kind of sharing a few random stories from my own life, and I'll, you'll, you'll get the, uh, the point of it here in just a minute. But I can remember uh, having a conversation a couple years ago with one of my best friends from college. Uh, he and I uh, came to Christ about a similar time. We just came to life in, in virtually every way. Like the lights went on. He and I led our first um, small group, our first growth group together uh, when we were, I mean, I was 19 years old. Uh, I'd been a, a Christ follower for about six months when I led my first study. And so he and I kind of were co-leading this thing. Uh, we, we grew up in so many ways. We tasted many ministry together. He even went with me uh, on a missions trip that we did. And uh, I mean, we were just loving it. We wanted our lives to be all about seeing other people come alive in Jesus and, and seeing God's kingdom and God's plans lived out in this world. And I mean, it was, we were, we were uh, two peas in a pod. And so uh, it was like the passion of our lives. Well, uh, after Russia, he graduated a year before me. So he, he uh, went on and I kind of lost track with him for a while, but he's met up with him a few years ago. He was, uh, he's a, a teacher in a Christian school in the Chicago area. He's a great guy, still going to church, still doing the thing, but he's kind of settled down in his faith, if you know what I mean. He's sort of grown up, quote, quote, uh, in his faith. And uh, I, I met up with him a couple years ago. We had supper together and uh, was just kind of asking him about life. And he was telling me stories. And there was one in particular that sort of stuck out to me because it kind of broke my heart a little bit. He was talking about um, one of his students that he had, again, in this Christian school. And he was talking about this, this young whippersnapper was uh, was a new believer. He, too, had just come alive. And he was out. He was going to change the world, right? I mean, he was, he was on fire. He was telling people about Jesus. He particularly had a heart for the poor and was trying to start some different ministries uh, in Chicago that would really minister to some homeless people and to people that, that really had very little. And, uh, and my friend um, ended up saying, yeah, he's like, I can remember those days. But he, this is what he said. He said, but sooner or later, this kid's going to grow up and realize that he can't really make that big a difference in this world. That uh, you know, a kid like him, the best he can hope for is just to kind of do some little things for God. That, uh, you know, that he can't really make that big of an impact. He kind of just, you know, at some point he's going to kind of tone down a little bit and just settle into this you know, kind of real life as a Christian. And as he said that, sort of my heart and my spirit sort of sunk. I'm like, I'm like, is that really what growing up looks like? 
Is that really what, what the destiny is for every Christ follower? That we just sort of lose heart and sort of just settle into the reality of like, God can't really use me. God can't really do. He might have put a passion in my heart, but there's, there's not really that much I can do. I'm just a little person. Can't really do that much. Story number two kind of reminds me of, I can remember uh, a bunch of family members, several different family members in my family saying this to me. Again, I had been a Christ follower for a very short period of time, uh, probably about a year. And, and, and like I said earlier, I mean, it, every part of my life was, was just tra- you know, transforming before my eyes. My, my family recognized that people could see uh, that, that Christ had made a huge difference in my life. And so I was, uh, I mean, I was basically spending virtually every waking moment either getting to know God more and worshiping him and growing in my walk with him or letting other people know about him. And uh, because he had so transformed my life, I wanted everybody to know. And at one point I felt like, again, I've been a Christ follower about a year when, uh, when I started feeling a prompting and sensing a nudge by God to, uh, to go to Russia. It was not long after the Berlin Wall had come down. Uh, Russia had been an atheistic state for you know, a long time, decades and decades and decades, and I uh, just kind of felt this nudge like I was supposed to go. And so I ended up going um, and signing up. And before I went, uh, I had several different family members sort of speak into me in that way and said, uh, you know, I, I know that you're passionate about this, that you're zealous for this kind of thing, right? I know that you want to go change the world and that kind of thing. But, but they said for something very similar. Said, you know, but sooner or later, you're, that's going to sort of just, it's, it's going to just kind of, I can't think of the word, but it's going it, to, you're going to lose your zeal. Sooner or later, the urgency is kind of going to go down. You're going to settle in to whatever. Somebody like you can't, you're not going to lead millions of people to Christ. You're not going to, you're not going to do, you know, you're not going to be able to do these kind of things. Sooner or later, you're just going to realize that you can only just, you know, you can just do a little bit of church stuff, but then you'll go on with the rest of your life, with real life, kind of from there. There's sort of uh, this under, underlying uh, set of values that, you know, you're probably not smart enough, you're not winsome enough, you're not good enough, a good enough Christian. You haven't been a Christ follower long enough to actually be used by God in those kinds of ways. And the sooner that you learn that, the better off that you'll be. Remember a third story. I remember uh, we, we moved to Wisconsin uh, to start a, a church up there. Uh, again, we were in our mid-20s, my wife and I. Um, I can remember I went around and met with all the different pastors in the area just to assure them and say, you know what, we are, we are here as partners with you. We are not in competition. We're not here to steal your people. We're not, you know, that's not our heart. Our desire is really to take, I mean, the majority of people in culture aren't in any Christian church on a given weekend. So our heart is really to go and help connect with those people and to start a church out of, out of people that aren't really church people and to see them come to know Jesus and come alive and, and, and that kind of thing. I can remember meeting with these two other pastors from the area that kind of said something similar. I said, yeah, they said, you know what? That's just not possible. What you're talking, it's a nice little dream. And I can feel, I can see in your youthful zeal that that might be, you know, a positive thing. But sooner or later, you're going to come to the same realization that we have. That the best you can hope for is just start a church for church people. You'll steal some people from other churches. Maybe they'll like yours a little better than somebody else's. And they'll just, you know, that that's about the best you can hope for. You can't really expect to see life lives change. You can't really change. You can't fight against the culture here. That's just the way it is. And the sooner you realize that, the better off you'll be. Isn't that crazy? 
I, I tell you what, sooner, I mean, you, you keep hearing messages like that, and I know mine are all about church and ministry and that kind of stuff, and that might not be what you hear, but, but so, so often we have voices that are bombarding us over and over and over and over, saying, so you know what, you can't do that. You're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not winsome enough, you're not good looking enough, you're not whatever to do what you're trying to do, and the sooner you just settle down, Get rid of your dreams and just settle into that reality, the better off you'll be. Maybe it's, uh, for you, it's not ministry stuff, but all of us hear this stuff uh, from time to time. And maybe you start thinking, well, maybe I can't do it. Maybe I do just need to grow up, quote, unquote. Maybe I just need to concede that I'll never really be able to do that kind of thing. It happens in lots of ways. I mean, we watch this with our kids sort of fearfully at times where you can see kids at very, very young ages. Maybe they're in kindergarten or first grade or second grade before they even know what they're good at or not. They could have an experience at school or something or maybe with maybe with a teacher, maybe with another adult, maybe with other kids, but maybe they're going through a hard, a hard time in school or they're struggling with a project or something and somebody says something to them and it sort of takes root in their heart. And, and suddenly you, you hear things coming out of their mouths like this, like, I'm not good at art. You know, you're like, you're in kindergarten. Nobody's good at art, right? Like kind of thing. But they're like, you know, you know or, or I'm not good at math or I'm not very smart. You can hear those things start to come out of people, can't you? And you're like, what are you saying? But so, somewhere along the line, somebody has said something, and it's hooked. It's gotten a hook in their hearts and in their souls, and it's I- impacting who they are. It's impacting their identity and what they believe about themselves. Or maybe it's not something like that. Maybe somewhere along the line, who knows, maybe in adolescence, somebody mean, I might add, somebody said something to you about the way you look. I said, you're ugly, or you're huge, or your eyes are too close together, or your eyes, or whatever, right? I mean, like, somewhere along the line, somebody said something, and it, it stuck into you a little bit, right? And you're like, I, maybe I am ugly. Maybe nobody will want me. Maybe I'm unlovable. Maybe I'm unattractive. Right? But there's things like that that get spoken. And, and again, especially, especially when it happens again and again and again and again, suddenly those things take root in our heart and it is crippling to us. Melissa did a great job of talking about some of this last week when she said moms are classic with this kind of stuff, right? Moms, they start looking around at other moms and other kids and other whatever, and they're, and they're like, you know what? I don't know. Maybe I'm not a good mom. Maybe, maybe if I did a better job, my kid would be like that or my kid, right? I mean, but it's not just moms. All of us do this kind of thing. They take root in our hearts and in our souls, because at one point, maybe parents or teachers, maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it's your ex-spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's your frenemies or whatever that is, right? I mean, people you have a love-hate relationship with, but somebody has spoken something into you that did such damage that it, it sort of systematically shifted the way you view yourself. It's affected and impacted your identity, and you've ended up believing what they said, that you're ugly, that you're, you'll never be good at anything, that you're a tramp or a loser or a geek or whatever. And it is lodged into our souls. And I see this all the time. It affects people in one of two ways. Either it, it, it affects them in a way that they believe it. They're like, you're right. I am no good, right? 
I do stink at this. I'm not good enough for this. I'm not whatever. Or it's the opposite. But they're still wrestling with it, but they spend the rest of their lives trying to disprove it. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had a boss that ends up taking all of your ideas and claiming them for his own or her own? Ever, ever have even coworkers that will do anything to get credit, to, to push ahead, to get the spotlight on them? Why? If you could go back in their stories... I bet you could find a moment like this, right? When, when they, somebody said something, maybe it was a parent that said to them over and over and over, you'll never be good enough. You'll never be smart. You're not like one of those college kids or you're not like one of those smart kids or you're not like one of those gifted kids or you're not like one of, whatever. And it's, it's got its hooks in them. And they have spent a lifetime. They're doing, they're doing tremendous Destruction in their lives. Right? They're, they're wrecking all kinds of things because they're trying to disprove this over and over and over. They're trying to disprove, and, and they're trying to prove to the world, I should say, that I am enough. I'm lovable. I'm smart. I'm gifted. I'm good looking. I'm wantable. I'm whatever. They're spending their lives just trying to disprove and prove that they're worth something. I remember having a girl in uh, our youth group who just started out uh, doing ministry. It's the first job I had after college. And we started a youth group and there, uh, in a church up near Rockford. And there was a girl that had pretty much had every adult in her life say to her again and again and again, from her mom to her dad to her grandparents, all kinds of adults around her, she had heard, I don't want you. You were an accident and a mistake. I wish you were never born. That's what she had internalized. That's what she had heard. And that's what she had, had dug its claws in. How do you think that impacts a little preteen girl? Does devastating effects in their lives, doesn't it? And I see this kind of stuff all the time. I hear stories almost every week about people that grew up with words like that being spoken to them or have, or have heard things like that from families or husbands or wives or whatever. And as a result, they've got a scarred or blurry picture of who they are, a misunderstanding of their value and their importance to God and to others. Those voices and experiences function like distorted mirrors, giving them a false sense of their identity. And it often will do damage for the rest of their lives. Well, today we are on week number four of a series called Breakout, and I want to focus in on just breaking out of insecurity, I'm calling it, but I'm talking about the root, those, those core identity issues that often are distorted in our lives, because I think it can rear, those things rear their heads in almost all of our lives. It can wreak havoc on us. It can destroy relationships. It can ruin careers. It can kill even our own sense of joy and fulfillment and peace in our lives. Insecurity and a false sense of identity can do great damage. And whether we know it or not, we need to experience freedom and a breakout from that kind of thing. We need to learn to see ourselves and our true identities accurately as God does. I was reading this week in James uh, 1, 23 through 25. It kind of caught my attention in, in this way. Listen to this. He says this. It says, those who hear God's teaching... And do nothing are like people who look at themselves in a mirror. Whoops. Can we go on that next slide? Is it there? Hey, there it is. So those who hear God's teaching and do nothing are like people who look at themselves in a mirror. They see their faces and they go away and quickly forget what they look like. 
But the truly happy people are those who carefully study God's perfect law that makes people free. They continue to study it. They don't forget what they have heard, but they obey what God's teaching says. Those that do this will be made happy. I thought that was a fascinating picture. James says that God's book, his word, functions like a mirror for us. A perfect and accurate mirror. A perfect and accurate reflection of who we are, of who God is, and how we are to even treat one another. We find an accurate reflection of who we are. And God says that the person, the man or the woman that keeps looking intently into this mirror and acting on what, what gets reflected back to them. Says so those are the ones that will experience freedom and joy in life, right? They will be blessed, another translation says, in all they do. Well, friends, that's what I want to do a little bit this morning. I want us to kind of step back and take a look into this perfect mirror that makes people free and let God sort of reflect back to us who we really are, who others are, and who He is. We'll start with kind of how God sees us, and then at the end, I'll come back and kind of broaden it out a little bit to. To, to everybody else. But I think this is, I mean, it's one of these things that I think if we really grabbed hold of what we're going to talk about, it's nothing profound, it's nothing like jaw-dropping, like, I never thought of that. But I'll tell you what, if we would, if we could hear God's truth from this, and if we could really believe what he says about us, I'll tell you what, friends, it would bring f- tremendous amounts of freedom into our lives. It really would. It would free us from so much of the junk that plagues us and haunts us, the kind of things that maybe we don't talk to other people about, but the things that are the tapes that are playing over and over and over in our head. I'll tell you what, if we believed God on this, if we clung to that, if we let God's truth set hooks into our hearts like that and anchored us, it would be it would be amazing. It would bring tremendous amounts of freedom. Well, I spent most of my study time this week in a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 62. We're going to just camp out there the rest of the day. I'm going to read through this, and then I'll go back give some context. We're going to look at three different things, but it's it's focused here around the identity of God's people, and I want to talk about that. Isaiah 62, starting verse one, says this: says, "For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent." For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet until her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow on you. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hands, a royal diadem in the hand of our God. No longer will they call you deserted or your name desolate. But they will call you, you will be called Hephzibah in your land, Beulah. For the Lord will take great delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now a little bit of background here. It's a little bit of a confusing passage because the passage is actually written about a city. In fact, what city is it written about? It's written about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is located in Israel, of course, and Israel was known in that day, especially as the place of God's chosen people in Jerusalem, most of all. And so as the passage is talking about the city, as it's talking about Jerusalem, it's really talking about the people of God, those who trust and follow and know and love God. Okay, I mean, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people was known as Israel, right here. Uh, But in the New Testament, God's chosen people are known as who? Who are God's chosen people in the New Testament times? 
Christians, right? Christ followers, right? The church, us, right? Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, we are the ones that he's referring to. The God's chosen people in a very real way. We are sort of the new Israel, the new people of God in New Testament times. Well, he's speaking to his people and he's saying, you know what? I am going to give you a new name. I will call you by a new name. Now, that's a pretty common thing. Again, if you read through scripture, you see this over and over again. In Bible times, people are often named and renamed according to their character, who they were or who they would become. For instance, if you read through and you read in Genesis 17, you, know, you read about an old man who had no children. And God ends up renaming him to be Abraham, which means father of many nations, because God made a promise to him. He said, you know what? I'm going to give you, your descendants are going to be like the sand on the seashore. It's going to be like the stars in the heavens. That's what your, uh, your family is going to become. I'm going to give you children like you can't imagine. Children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Uh, I mean, he's just, it's going to be amazing. And so he renames him and gives him a name that reflects that truth. He says, you're going to be the father of many nations. If you read Matthew 16, you, you read a story about an impulsive young man who has a run-in with Jesus. And he too is given a new name. He's saying, no longer are you going to be just whimsical and impulsive and just fly by the seat of your pants. Says, From now on, you're going to be known as Peter, the rock. means rock, right? He says, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church, Jesus says. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He changes his name to kind of reveal his identity, who he's going to become. And it comes to pass, just like he said. Or, or another New Testament name, you, you read about uh, one man that, that is given the name, a new name of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he would be one that would encourage and bring uh, encouragement to the church and to the, the Christians in uh, the first century church. We can see dozens and dozens of examples of this throughout Scripture. But here God is looking at his people and he's saying, you know what, for all of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ, says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you a new identity. He says, those mirrors, those voices from your past, maybe you have heard many things, and those mirrors might reflect that you are no good, that you are desolate, that you're unlovable, that you're stupid or ugly or deserted scores of other names, you might have even believed them. Maybe that has been who you've become and the names that you have believed and taken on yourself. But God says, you know what? Here's what I want you to know. No longer will you be called desolate. No longer do you have to own the name of worthless or a failure or that you're no good or a screw up or stupid or whatever. He says, from now on, those who put their trust in me, I will give them a new name and a new identity I will bestow on you. And friends, i got to tell you, if we can hear these names, if we can take hold of them, it'll be an amazing transformation. I'm just going to look at three. He goes on to talk about it in the next few verses. I'm going to categorize them in three sort of ways. And uh, again, not probably not jaw-dropping, but transformational if we buy into it. The first one is this. He says, you know, you are valued. You're incredibly valuable to God. You're of infinite worth. And he starts out, he says in verse 3, he says, You are like a crown of splendor in the Lord's hands, a royal diadem, like jewels on a crown in the hand of your God. The first thing that God says is that his people, is that those who trust him, he says, you are so valuable. You're a treasure. You are of infinite worth to God. You might have forgotten it. It might not feel that way to you right now, but God says, let me remind you that you are incredibly valuable to me. 
There's a story by John Ortberg that I love. I've shared it probably once before, but uh, he tells a story from his youth about uh, his sister and a doll that she owned. And he starts out by saying this. He says, her name was Pandy. She had lost a good deal of her hair. One of her arms was missing. And generally speaking, she had the stuffing knocked out of her. He said, she was my sister Barbie's favorite doll. She hadn't always looked like this. Her face and hands were made of some kind of rubber and plastic, so they looked real, but her body was stuffed with rags to feel soft and squeezable like a real baby. When Pandy was young, my sister Barbie loved her, he said. She loved her with a love that was too strong for Pandy's own good. When Barbie went to bed, Pandy lay right next to her. When Barbie had lunch, Pandy ate beside her. When Barbie could get away with it, he said, Pandy even took a bath with her at times. Barbie's love was for the doll quite literally a, a near-fatal attraction, he says. He says, by the time I knew Pandy, she was not a particularly attractive doll. In fact, to tell you the truth, she was a mess. She was no longer very viable. He said, in fact, I'm not sure we could give her away to anybody. But for reasons that nobody could quite ever figure out, in the way that kids sometimes do, my sister Barbie loved that little rag doll still. By, the time, by that time, Pandy was more rag than doll, but Barbie loved her as strongly in the days of Pandy's raggedness as she had in the days of her beauty. When Pandy was young, Barbie loved her. She celebrated her beauty, but when Pandy was old and ragged, Barbie loved her still. Now, she didn't simply love Pandy because Pandy was beautiful, but she loved her with a love that kind of made Pandy beautiful and more valuable. He ends by saying this, such is the truth of human beings. We are all of us ragdolls, flawed and wounded and broken and bent, but we are God's ragdolls. He knows all about our raggedness, and he values us anyway. Our raggedness is no longer the most important thing about us. His is a love that creates value in what is loved, a love that turns ragdolls into priceless treasures. He says there's a love that fastens itself onto ragged little creatures for reasons that no one ever quite could figure out, and it makes them precious and valued beyond calculation. Now listen, friends. God says you're valuable to him like that. Like a crown of splendor, like a royal gem or jewel. You are of unbelievable worth and value to God. You matter to him like that. Every person in this room, it's true for. Isaiah 43, 4 puts it this way. He says, you are precious to me. You're of infinite value to me. A couple years ago, uh, there was a Kuwaiti oil sheik whose daughter was kidnapped, and he went on the internet and posted uh, a, a quote that said, he would pay any price for her return. She was the daughter of a king. She was invaluable, in his words, worth any price. Well, friends, you too are a son or daughter of the king. You're a child of God, and he will pay anything, including going to the cross and dying there to get you back. Jesus says, I love you so much that I'd die for you. Titus 2, 13 and 14 just reminds us of that. When it says this, well, <clears throat> while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, listen to this, who gave himself for us, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God paid a great price for you, the greatest ransom ever paid. God exchanged his one and only son for you because you are that valuable to him, because you matter that much.
to him. You're of great worth. Second thing, just quickly, says uh, you're accepted, right? Verse four says, no longer will they call you deserted. No longer will they call your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. And your land Beulah, which means married, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. No longer be alone. Now, this is just cool because God says that's no longer the primary thing about you. No longer will you be called deserted or abandoned or alone, but I will call you Hephzibah because my delight will be in you. My delight is in you. You may have forgotten it. You may not feel like it, but I delight in my people, God says. I delight in you. You're accepted and cared for about God. I shared this uh, a few weeks ago, but counselors and psychologists have come to the conclusion, after tremendous amounts of study, they've come to the conclusion that the most hurtful emotion, bar none, is rejection. They said, man, people, when people feel rejected, it does unbelievable damage to their souls, to their, to their uh, worldview, to their own sense of identity. When we've been, uh, when we felt rejected by a spouse or a former spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a teacher or a friend or whatever, they said, man, nothing hurts you more than rejection. It does tremendous damage. And they say, as a result, we spend so much of our lives trying not to be rejected, doing virtually anything we could to, to earn acceptance. We want it from our parents. We want it from our peers. We want it from people that we respect, those in authority. We want it from those that we envy. We want acceptance even from people we don't even particularly like. And we'll do it. We'll do almost anything to get it because, man, we're just like, man, we want to know that we're accepted because we don't want to be rejected. The researchers go and say, they, they kind of like it and go back to it and say, man, do you ever remember back in elementary school when people uh, would, would urge you to do something that was really kind of stupid? And there's this little phrase that they would say to try and get you to do it. If you were hesitant in the first place, they'd say, I dare you, right? I double dog dare you, right? Like, I dare you to do this. And they would ask you, I dare you to jump out of that tree. You know, something stupid. I, I dare you to eat this, you know, mystery meat, lima bean, cheese, pudding, Coke, and Cheetos concoction that I just made up with a worm in it. I double dog dare you. And kids will actually do this stuff, right? It's stuff that, that like, if you just ask somebody, would you eat this? They'd be like, no, man, I'm totally... I totally wouldn't do that. But because they fear rejection, because more than almost anything else, they want to be accepted, they'll do it. Isn't that crazy? We'll do the darndest things in an effort just in order to be liked, to be accepted, to fit into the group. Because nobody wants to be rejected. More than just about anything, we want to be accepted. We want to be loved. And God says, you know what? I settled this a long, long time long time ago. You are accepted. Titus 3, he puts it this way. It says, He, Jesus, saved us because of His mercy, not because of any good things we have done. God washed us by the power of His Spirit. He gave us new birth and a fresh beginning. God sent Jesus Christ, our Savior, to give us His Spirit. He treated us much better than we deserve. Listen to this. He made us acceptable to God and gave us the hope of eternal life. You're acceptable to God. It says, 
Not because of your own merit, not because you're good enough or you're all deserving or you're whatever, but it's just the kind of God he is. He's gracious, he's loving, he's for you, and he wants you. He says any person that has opened up their heart and life to Jesus, he says, you know what the truth is? You are accepted. You are in great standing with God. He delights in you. He delights in you. Not based on your being good enough or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or working or achieving or doing or doing or doing or doing. He says, no, if you've opened up your heart and life to Jesus, he says, you know what the truth is? He's poured out his grace on you and he sees you like Jesus. He sees you as perfect in his sight. There's nothing you can do to earn his, you know, that acceptance more. He has embraced you. He has adopted you into his family for those that have put their trust in him. He's invited you to his table, and he wants to spend eternity with you. Every moment of every day for the rest of of time, and then some. He says, I have accepted you. Some of us have been around the church for quite a while, and we might know that God loves us. We might know, right, some of those things. But we've never really experienced and let that sucker sink in to realize that we belong to him. He not only loves us, but he likes us. He wants us. He pursues us. He seeks us. He accepts us through Christ. He's adopted us into his family. He approves of you and he's pleased of you. You can't do anything more to be more accepted by him if you're in Christ. He says, you are acceptable in my eyes. You're standing with God. He's unchangeable. It's unshakable. God approves of you. He delights in you. It's not based on what you do, but it's based on his gift of grace and forgiveness through Jesus. Third thing is this, and that's, it's really the theme for the day, what we've been talking about all along. But it's that you and I are loved. I love verse 5. He says, you know, as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. Now, again, this is weird. Keep in mind, he's talking. It's not, he's not promoting incest here or anything like that. Again, he's talking to, about Jerusalem, about the people of God. And it just means that the people will, will live in the city again. They'll continue to be there in Jerusalem. But he goes on and says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isn't that great? As a groom rejoices over his bride, so God rejoices over you. God sees you not just as valuable and acceptable, but he sees you as lovable with a deep, unchanging kind of love. The most common metaphor for uh, that sort of deep devotion of love is the bride and groom throughout Scripture. And God says, I love you like that. I love you like that. I want to be with you like that. My love for you will never change. I'm devoted to you. I love you, period. I mean, the most famous verse in the Bible, right? John 3, 16 is the one that that people hold up at football games, which most of the crowd scratches their head and says, who is John, right? What is is the 316 about? I don't even know what that's talking about. But it's it's probably one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. And, And it says this, for God so loved who? The world. The world. Who do you suppose is included in that? Do you suppose you're included? 
Do you suppose I'm included? Do you suppose people that the world might see as unlovely or undeserving, do you suppose they're included in that? For God so loved the world, all of us, humanity, right? He so loved you that he, was, he gave his one and only son. He sacrificed his one and only son. That whoever believes, whoever opens their heart, whoever puts their faith into Christ and what he's done, will not perish, but have life forever, eternal life. Starting in the here and now and going for all eternity. God so loved you that way that he, he was willing to, to die in your place so that you could live. Isaiah 51, or 5410 says it like this. The mountains and the hills may crumble, but my God's steadfast love for you will never end. Will never end. Okay, one more quote from a guy by the name of Mike Slaughter. He's a pastor of Ginghamsburg Church. He says this. He says, do you know God loves you with a passion that defies all reason? You are the all-consuming passion of God's being. God's just berserk with love for you. How berserk? God became a human being and came after us. God was willing to die on a cross for us. That's, that's a love that's beyond reason. A God that would do something like that. How much does God love us, he says? It's beyond self-preservation. Without regard to life or limb. Reckless abandonment. Go for broke. Be willing to be hung out there with everything you've got kind of passion. That's God's love for you. He's crazy about you. So you don't ever have to wonder where you stand with God. He is always for you. He could never love you more, and he would not love you less. It doesn't matter what you've done, how far you strayed. He loves you, and he's welcoming you. He's trying to draw you home as his son or daughter. And his love is calling to each one of us this morning, again, drawing us home. Say, come on, come on home. Be back adopted into my family. Let me wash away your sins. Let me take your former identity and wash it away. Those, those voices that call you desolate or undeserving or unlovable or unwantable or whatever. Let me wash those away. Let me give you a new name, a new identity, something that's glorious. Let me speak into your soul. And let you know that you matter. That you are loved. That the, the God of the universe, your creator, thinks you're worth dying for. He says, I want, to, I, want, I want to live my life with you. I want you to live your life with me. I want to do life with you. I want you to know me. I want to walk with you. I want to direct you and fill you. I want to make you new and give you that new name. And I want, I want to rescue you and show you and teach you and help you experience the life that you're born for. That's the kind of love that God has for you. Friends, I don't know where you're at with God this morning. I'm not sure what he might be speaking to you or saying to you. For some of us, the truth be told, we may have been around church before. Maybe we've heard some churchy people or whatever. Maybe we even know a little bit about this. Oh, yeah, God loves me, you know, kind of thing, whatever. But maybe we've never really opened up our heart and our life to Jesus. Maybe we've never really experienced that love for ourselves. And I'll tell you what, friends, there could not be a further difference between knowing God loves you versus opening up our lives and experiencing his love. 
letting him wash away our past and make us. It's a totally different experience and thing. If you have never done that before, I would encourage you today, man, open up your heart, open up your life and just cry out, Jesus, I need you. Would you come and wash away my sin? Would you come and wash away my raggedness? And instead, would you come and move into my life? Would you fill me and lead me and guide me from this point forward and be my God? Would you speak to me my new name, my new identity? Would you etch that, tattoo that sucker into my soul, into my heart, that I could walk and live in that new identity from this point forward? If you haven't done that before, I'd encourage you today just to, to turn towards me. It doesn't, doesn't require magic words or whatever that kind of thing. It requires a step of faith, which is just to turn back to God and just cry out, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Would you come into my life and lead me and guide me? I'm yours. I'm all in. Some of us maybe have, have prayed that prayer in the past, but the truth be told, we are still living our identity, trying to get play, you know, trying to get approval from all kinds of other people or trying to prove it to the world by our own success or achievement or whatever. We're trying to prove that we're valuable, that we're lovable, that we're whatever. And I'll tell you what, whether we know it or not, there's a wake of destruction behind us anytime we're trying to find our identity there. And maybe this morning the living God is just drawing you home saying, man, I settled this a long time ago. I settled this a long time ago. And I not only want to save you once, you know, like going to heaven, you prayed the prayer, did the thing. But I want, to, I want to write that new name on your heart today. I want to teach you how to live tomorrow. I want to usher you into a new life. And maybe again, this morning, you just need to put that down. All the, all the striving and trying to prove and trying to whatever, all the junk that we have believed about, maybe it's time to put that down and turn back towards Christ and just say, would you come and renew me? Would you come and wash my mind and take that stuff off of my soul and just breathe your love into my lungs again? Speak to me again. Reminding me that I'm your beloved son or daughter. That you think I'm worth dying for. That I have value because I'm yours. Because you made me. Because you love me. Help me to find my identity in you. And thirdly, maybe you're here. Maybe you are living that out these days. Maybe you're like, you know what the truth be told? I'm not perfect, but I'm doing a decent job of living in that identity as God's son or his daughter. I think he's fond of me. I sense his smile on me. He's filling me, and I'm trying to, you know, I screw up, and I'm quick to come back, but I'm living with him and for him, and if that's you, can I just say, man, I wonder who's around you. If you're really living that out, if Jesus is everything, I wonder who God has put around you that needs to know it, because we live in a world full of people starving for the kind of love we're talking about, the kind of acceptance we're talking about. There are people around you every day, I guarantee it, I don't care where you work, there are people around you every day in your neighborhood, at your office, in your workplace, whatever, right, that are just crying out and longing and looking. And maybe the living God has put you there to love on people and to build a relationship with them. And as God opens up the door of opportunity to point them back home and say, you know, there's a God that's crazy about you, a God that died so that you can live, a God that thinks... You're amazing. That has great love and great value and great acceptance of you through Christ. Would you step into that? I wonder if the living God wants to use you 
to bring somebody else home. I don't know, friends. I don't know what God's saying to you. I'm not sure what he's prompting you to do, but man, that's, that's my prayer for all of us today is that we would first, that we would open up and receive this love that, God's have, that God has for us, that we could know that in reality and that we could share it with those around us who desperately need it. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, what an amazing truth um, that we just need to, I mean, all of us, I think, need to embrace today, need to hear today. God, would you personalize it? Would you, would you etch this into our souls that we are loved by you? That through Christ, we are of infinite value, that we are accepted, that we, are, that we can know your love that passes all understanding beyond comprehension. Father, for those of us that uh, have, have never really done it before, never really turned towards you, God, we just want to pause right now. We just want to open up our hearts, open up our hands, open up our souls, and we just cry out, Jesus, would you come and would you, would you move in? Would you forgive us for our sins and for the junk of the past, for our raggedness, for the ways that we have uh, turned our backs to you, ways that we have I don't know, try to earn or prove or whatever our own, uh, our own value and worth. Would you wash away the voices and the, the junk of our past? And would you move into our hearts and into our lives, God? Would you, would you speak to us afresh this morning of, of your great love for us, of your sacrifice for us? Lord, we turn to you and we say, we need you. We cry out to you. We put our trust in you and what you've done. Would you forgive us and cleanse us, and then would you lead us and be our God from this moment forward? Lord, for those of us that have uh, maybe prayed that but are, are still living, uh, trying to find our identity in all kinds of other places, God, would you, would you just bring us back home this morning? Would you... Help us just to quit striving and quit playing the game. Or we sort of drop that heavy load this morning and turn back home and live our lives as your beloved son or daughter. And we just receive what you have for us today. And as well, God, if there are people around us, undoubtedly there are. If there are people around us that just desperately, more than anything, just need to know they are loved by a God that's crazy about it. That there is hope, there is life, there's acceptance, there's everything. Lord, would you open our eyes to the opportunities that you put around us and give us courage and boldness, give us your kind of love. Fill us with that love, over to overflowing, that we can love those around us, that we can point them back home to the Savior, to Jesus. We need you, we love you. Just come and have your way in us, we pray this morning. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.